Well, Jonah chapter 4 reminds me a little bit of uh, an Agatha Christie film. Um, Hercule Poirot has uh, been looking at all the evidence and he's been trying to work out who, who done it. And uh, eventually, caught it. it's funny, isn't it, how they're all willing to be there in the same room at the end. Nobody's run off. And uh, he gradually unveils everything and solves the mystery. And it answers questions. He answers the questions that you've been asking if you've been watching the film. Why did she do that? Where, why did he go there? And uh, why did he say that? But all the mysteries are, are answered in the final kind of chapter of the film. Well, it's a bit like that here in, in Jonah 4. The questions that have been raised in the story are kind of answered here. Um, that's what God is providing for us in the, in the last book. In fact, chap, chapter 4 and much of the book is all about God providing, hasn't it? You notice in, in chapter 1, God provides or God sends a wind that stirs up the, the, the sea. Um, he provides a fish at the end of chapter 2 to swallow Jonah and to, and to rescue him from drowning. He provides a vine in chapter 4, a worm and a scorching east wind. God is providing all these things. And he's also providing answers. Providing answers to the questions that have come up in the book as we've gone along. There's one question, of course, that is left hanging. Isn't there? Right at the end. Because the book ends with a question. And we'll come to that at the end. So here's, uh, here's my first question that's answered, I think, here. Firstly, why did the Lord send Jonah to Nineveh? Why did God send Jonah to Nineveh in the first place? The first words of the book. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me but why 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 did god why did god want to send jonah there why bother why bother with all this trouble of getting a man to go from israel to nineveh it's a long way well the answer there is given for us isn't it in this chapter the lord's own words to jonah should, should you be con concerned about this vine? Yes, he says, I'm, I'm concerned about it. Well, you've been concerned about the vine. You didn't tend or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh's more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Shouldn't I be concerned about that great city? Now, there's a bit of debate over, you know, what does that mean? People who cannot tell their right hand from their left. There's a bit of debate over that. Uh, some have suggested it means children who've kind of be before the age of kind of uh, understanding. Some people have thought that. Uh, I'm not convinced. I think it's the kind of general population of the city, 120,000, about 30,000 in Northwich and its environs. Can you imagine then? It's 120,000 people in this great city and they can't tell their right hand from their left what does that mean well i think it means they're spiritually and they're morally 
kind of ignorant. They are blind. They're in the dark. That's what it means. Ecclesiastes says this, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. And these people don't know their right hand from their left. They, they are morally and spiritually ignorant. Or, if you were at our Bible study last week, this, this last Wednesday, Paul talks about people in the Gentile world like this in Ephesus, darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So it's not, a, it's not an innocent ignorance. It's a willful ignorance. And one thing is clear in this chapter, in this conclusion, is that the Lord is concerned about Nineveh. He is concerned about them. They might be willfully ignorant. They might say, well, we don't want to know what this God. We, they might be wicked, but it's amazing, isn't it, that the Lord is concerned about them. And I'm reminded of Jesus in the Gospels when he looks out on the crowd and he has compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he, he, he preaches the good news to them. And the Lord here contrasts Jonah's attitude to the, to the plant or to the vine with his attitude to the city, to these people. This vine, you didn't, you didn't look after it. God says to Jonah, you didn't care for it. You didn't make it grow. And, you, and, you, and you're concerned about it. How much more should I be concerned about this city? He says. Now the implication is that though it's a wicked city, God has been concerned about it. God has caused this city to flourish. God has caused this city to function. God has caused the people there to kind of live. And the livestock and cattle as well. Vets will be pleased about that in the congregation. The livestock as well. God is concerned. And he's caused this city to flourish. Isn't it amazing? Even though it's a wicked city, it's a violent city. And that final sentence is a question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Shouldn't I be concerned? The implication is I am. I am concerned. And so he sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach. Yes, it was a message of judgment. But what, what was behind the message? Well, the message, whenever in the Bible there is judgment concerned and preached, the underlying message is turn, turn away from it so that you will be spared. And as the king said in chapter 3, perhaps God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. That was God's design. That's why he sent Jonah. That's the kind of God he is. I wonder if you've been ever bowled over by that. Have you ever been amazed at that? That this is the kind of God he is. 
Have we got the eyes to see it? When, I, uh, when we lived in, in Turin, we used to get lots of visitors coming and we would show them the city. They wanted to see the city. And it's a nice city. We were, we were biased, I suppose, but it is a nice city, city center. And we would show them the, the, the piazzas and the royal palace. And we'd show them the shops and the porticos and the tower, the mole. You could go up and look at the whole city. We would show them that you could see the Alps on a clear day when it was clear. And in the winter, there was snow on the top. We would show them the beauty of the city. And I remember... Um, taking a group of Americans. They'd come round to spy out the land, as it were. They'd come to see the city. And I, I took them into this piazza in the middle of the city, and I said to them, this is my favorite piazza in the whole of the city. And the guy looked at it, and he said, why? Well, I didn't say much to him, but I thought, Why? Why? Look at it. Look at the symmetry. Look at the shutters. Look at the beautiful porticos. Look at the statue in the middle. Look at the church. The church is at the end. Look at it. Look at it. If you're going to ask a question like why, there's something wrong with you. Look at it. Your answer shouldn't be why, but wow. Now, when we see this theme about the compassion of God and his concern for wicked people and wicked cities and wicked communities who deserve no more than destruction, have we ever been moved to say, wow, wow? You see, if not, then there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with us. Something wrong with you. Have you ever seen a toddler in a shop and it's the terrible twos and he's throwing a tantrum and he's screaming and the father is holding the child up and the child is screaming and kicking and would bite if he could. And at any moment, the father's patience could, uh, could run out. The father could drop the child. But he doesn't. Now, that's a picture of God. The Bible presents us with that picture of God. He is upholding this world of humanity. He's upholding the great cities of the world. London and New York and New Delhi and Seoul and Moscow and so many others. The millions and billions of people in cities around the world. And he's upholding them. He's causing them and enabling them to flourish and function. And smaller communities like Leftwich and Hartford and Winnington. And Rudd Heath. And he's, he's upholding these communities. He's causing people to function and to flourish. But what are these communities of people doing? What is the basic and the general attitude towards God? Well, they're kicking and screaming and they don't want God in their lives. They don't want the Lord's Prayer in the cinemas. Any reference to God, no. And there's violence and there's corruption and there's greed and there's immorality 
And there's lostness and darkness and ignorance. And people just want to get on with their own lives. No God, thank you very much. And up until this very moment, God is upholding these communities. He's upholding Northwich tonight. And people, humanity, like that toddler, kicking and screaming. Why doesn't God just drop us? That's what we deserve. And we should say, wow, that he doesn't. Most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, isn't it? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And we read that verse and we think, you know, when it says God so loved the world, we should say, wow, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. That's why. And you and I are a part of this world, this wicked world that God has loved in the giving of his Son that we might not perish, but that we might have eternal life. Isn't that amazing? Shouldn't that make us say, wow? That's why God sent Jonah to Nineveh. Now, a second question. Why did Jonah refuse to obey? Why did Jonah refuse to obey? Because that's what happens straight away, isn't it? We're told straight away, verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Right at the beginning. But why did he do that? We're not told. We're not told until chapter 4. We might guess along the way, but we have it from Jonah's lips. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. Why, Jonah? Well, you see, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's why Jonah fled from Tarshish, to, from, to Tarshish, from where he was. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate. I knew that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. Where did he get that from? Did he make it up? No. Jonah is a good theologian. Jonah's good. He knows the Bible. And he knows this because, well, the first reference to that is, is in Exodus with Moses. God's, God revealing himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. And God says these words. I am the Lord. This is, this is my name. Gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and mercy. And it, it becomes, as one preacher says, it, those words become like a creed that are, that are repeated through the Old Testament. The Psalms, Psalm 86 and Psalm 103, they quote these words. 
This is what God is like, gracious and compassionate. And, and, these, and the prophets quote them as well. And often the quotations are there to, to encourage or to comfort or to, or to stir people to come back to God. Look, this is what God is like. But only Jonah uses these words as a complaint. Only Jonah says, this is a problem. This is a problem, God, with you. I know this is what you're like. But I'm not very happy about it. You see, Jonah's doctrine is correct. There's nothing wrong with his doctrine. There's nothing wrong with doctrine from the Bible. But it makes him uneasy. It hasn't affected his heart, has it? It hasn't affected his heart. It's as if he's saying, well, this creed, Lord, about you being slow to anger and gracious and compassionate, that's fine. That's fine when it comes to certain people. It's fine when it comes to Israel. That's fine. And it's fine when it comes to me personally. Thank you, Lord, for rescuing me from the storm. You are gracious and compassionate. Thank you. But it's not fine when it comes to them. It's not fine when it comes to the Ninevites. It's a step too far for them. See, the doctrine of God's grace hasn't changed Jonah's heart. God's grace should soften us and soften our hearts, not harden. There's a cartoon in uh, the comic strip, you know, Peanuts with uh, Charlie Brown and Snoopy and the others. And in one scene, um, they're standing at the window and it's pouring down, a bit like yesterday. It's absolutely pouring down. And uh, they're watching it fall and Sally says to, uh, uh, to Linus, what if it floods the whole world? What if it floods the whole world? And Linus says, well, that'll never, that'll never happen, he says. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And Sally says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus says, yes, sound theology has a way of doing that. Sound theology has a way of doing that. Sound theology is, some, is something to comfort us. And it's something to change us. It's something to change us. When we understand what this God is like. And we come to, come to receive something of the grace of God, it should change us, shouldn't it? It should change us. It changed Paul, didn't it? Think of the Apostle Paul. If you like, he's the terrorist of the first century. You ever thought of him like that? Terrorizing Christians, putting them into prison. And, and he comes and face to face with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he's not wiped out. And he can't believe it. Why are you persecuting me? And he's not wiped out. He receives grace and mercy. And when he realizes that this is God's plan, that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, both Jews and Gentiles, 
male and female, slave and free. It changes him. And he says, from now on, we never look at people from a worldly point of view. We never look at them like that. It's changed the way I look at people, says Paul. It's changed me. So a man who, who hates Gentiles and who hates Christians, he is changed. And he, says, he writes in 2 Corinthians about the, the love of Christ compelling him. Seeing that people need to be reconciled to God. Seeing people as those for whom Christ died. And Jonah saw this, but it didn't change him. Paul saw it, it changed him. And what about you and me? Have we grasped this truth about God's concern for people, for communities, for cities? Has his character, this gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, is it reflected in you and me? Is it reflected in this church family? Oh, surely it should be. It was reflected in Jesus, wasn't it? What a contrast Jesus is to Jonah. As we think about Christmas and Jesus coming, we see him coming willingly, full of grace and truth, the Bible says, full of grace and truth. And look at Jesus. Look at his concern for people. And he sees the crowds. Remember, he, he feeds the 5,000, and a bit later he feeds the 4,000. The 5,000 he feeds in Jewish territory. Among the Jews, the 4,000 is in Gentile territory across the Sea of Galilee. And he's among the Gentiles. And he looks at the crowd and he says to his disciples, who are probably feeling a bit uncomfortable about being in the Gentile territory, he says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. What do we see there in Jesus? A concern for them. He doesn't say, well, let's hope a few of them have been saved and entered the kingdom of God and it doesn't matter about the rest. He doesn't say that, does he? He is concerned about them socially. He's concerned about them physically. And of course, there's a spiritual concern because he teaches the crowds. He doesn't just feed them, he teaches them. It's both and... When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And of course, he turns to the cross. He goes to the cross to redeem people, to redeem sinners. And I think the, the, the book is challenging us and it's saying, well, who do, we who do we resemble? Who do we reflect? Are we like Jonah or are we like Jesus? And we claim to follow this Lord Jesus who is full of grace and truth. How we need to pray. Lord, make us like you. Make us like you. A concern spiritually and socially for people.
Jonah ran away because he didn't have that concern. And the last question is this. What's behind Jonah's anger? What's behind Jonah's anger? It's obvious, isn't it, that Jonah is angry. The Lord asks him twice. There in verse 4, have you any right to be angry? It's ironic, isn't it? Jonah is angry and he's quick to be angry. Why? Because God is slow to be angry. There's another irony, isn't it, in the book? A bit like in chapter 1. Oh, I worship the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, but I'm running away from him. And now Jonah is angry. Why? Because, because God is slow to anger. But what's caused his anger? What's the, if you could say, what's the sin behind the sin? You can see his anger. He's, he's raging. It seems to me that this little incident with the vine perhaps helps us to see it. Jonah makes himself a little shelter outside the city. He's observing. He's not involved. He's observing what's going to happen. And the Lord provides a vine, we're told. Growing up very quickly, which provides shade and shelter. And it says, notice Jonah was very happy about the vine. Oh, it was a great vine. Great. Provided him with shade eased his discomfort really good he's happy but then the Lord provides a worm and it chews the vine so that it withers and then the sun rises and God provides the scorching east wind and the sun blazes on Jonah's head he grows faint he's maybe he's dehydrated or he's got a bit of sunstroke and he says I want to die I am angry, he says. I am angry enough to die. Well, he's not the first person in the Bible who's wanted to die. Moses wanted to die. He asked God to die. Elijah asked God to die. But this is different. Why does Jonah ask God, to, ask God that he might die? Well, because he doesn't want to be a prophet anymore. He's angry. It's a good job, isn't it, that God, when we are angry, doesn't give us what we ask for sometimes. What's Jonah's problem? What's the sin behind the sin? Well, it's a problem of deep-seated selfishness. That's the problem. You see, Elijah wanted to die, but I think it was for good reason. Elijah says, Lord, I've been, I've been laboring for you. I've been, I've been spending myself for your glory. And look what's happened. doesn't seem as if it's come to an anything. And Elijah's heart, you might say, is in the right place. He, he's concerned for God. Jonah is not concerned for God. Jonah is concerned about himself, isn't he? He's concerned about himself, his ministry. His comforts, his personal plan, his personal pleasure. That's what Jonah is concerned about. And he's angry because God hasn't followed the plan. He hasn't followed or stuck to the script. And he's angry because his comforts have been taken away. 
They've been threatened. They've been removed. Oh, Jonah was happy in Israel. That's fine. Preaching about blessing for Israel. That, that fitted in with the plan. And he was very happy in his little shady shelter. Me, myself, and I. Very happy. Made him feel good. Never mind about Nineveh. What a contrast to Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to suffer and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now does Jonah's character come a bit too close for comfort? Does he come a bit too close for us this evening? Uh, what's made you angry in the last week? What's made you angry? What makes you angry? Well, if you analyze it, more often than not, it's because of selfishness. It's because of selfish desires. You had your plans and somebody got in the way of your plans for your week. Somebody's got in the way and your plans have been spoiled and you get angry. Something's happened to thwart your plans. Or it could be because of your personal comfort, couldn't it? My pleasure. My pleasures are being threatened. I wanted to watch that TV program and someone came in and asked me to do something else. And you're angry. Somebody has made demands on you. How, how dare they make demands on you? After all, you're the center of the world. You're the center of the universe. The internet has failed. How dare the internet fail when I want to use a laptop? My phone, my phone is broken. It's the end of the world. There's a little book in the New Testament called James, and he tells us why we get angry. Listen to what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, it's all about me, my personal plans, my personal pleasure. That's the problem. That's why you get angry. And what an ugly thing it is. What an ugly thing it is. When you see it in yourself, it's terrible. What's the solution? What's the solution for Jonah? What's the solution for us? Well, wouldn't you say that the real miracle of the book is not the fish swallowing Jonah and him surviving? I think the real miracle of the book is maybe God's patience with Jonah, isn't it? This immense patience, as one writer says, to his obnoxious servant, showing himself gracious and merciful towards him, slow to anger towards Jonah. What's the solution? Well, James provides it. 
In that little passage I read to you, just after that, he says this. This is a solution. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Jonah needed to submit, didn't he, to God. He needed to say, Lord, you are God. You are God. And I recognize your call on my life. It's not about my plans. It's about your plans, Lord. You've shown me such grace. And it's about you. Should have submitted to God's concern for the Ninevites, shouldn't he? Said, Lord, if you love these people, then help me to love them as well. And God's sovereignty. Lord, you have the right to do what you wish. And if you want to take away this vine, then so be it. Help me to trust you. But he doesn't, does he? He doesn't want to do that. But that's what he should do. Submit to God. Submit yourselves then to God. And uh, isn't that right for us? Isn't, isn't this the message for us too? In our anger, we need to submit to God. Submit to God's calling on your life. Submit to God's calling on your life. He's calling you. Follow me, he says. Follow me. It's not you. It's not me following you. It's you following me. Follow me, says God. Follow me, says Christ. Submit to God's concern for others. Lord, help me to reflect something of your concern, your grace, your compassion for other people. Help me to get out of myself. Help me, Lord, to reflect your compassion to others. The same grace that sustains the Ninevites is the grace that sustains us. Submit to that. And help me to understand, help us to understand, Lord, when I submit to you, it's not all about me, but it's about you. And the book is left hanging with a question, isn't it? Should I not be concerned about that great city? And of course, it's a rhetorical question because the answer is yes, isn't it? Yes. Jonah, I should be concerned. I have nurtured these, this city and I'm concerned about the people and the livestock as well. But the question hangs over Jonah, doesn't it? What will he do? What will Jonah do? He's a bit like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, where the father says, come on into the feast. Come in. This younger son of mine, he was lost and he's found. He was dead. He's alive now. Come on in. And the parable is left hanging, isn't it? We don't know what the older brother's going to do. Is he going to come in? Is he going to rejoice with the father? Or is he going to stay outside sulking? It's a bit like that here. Is Jonah going to stay outside sulking? Or is he going to come and submit to God? What will you do? What will you do this evening? Submit yourselves then to God. Come near to God. And he will come near to you. May God help us to receive his word. Amen.